Welcome to episode 23 of the Father and Son Watch Horror Movies podcast. I am your co-host, the Father, also known as Pastor Matt, also known as Matt Rawlings, and I am joined, as always, by my trusty co-host, Jackson the Thun, who's feeling a little sleepy. Maybe I should take a nap in a grove of these conveniently situated alien pods. What could go wrong, right? <laughs> oh, man, and today we are joined back by special guest, Big Bill Van Vagel. How are you, Bill? I'm just doing awesome. It's actually seven degrees here today, which I don't know, you, for you guys would be about 40. So it's actually quite warm for us. So I'm quite happy. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, it's 50 here and it's still a bit chilly for me, but I, I did spend three years living in Texas. So, well, we are a spoiler podcast, folks. We spoil the movies we discuss. So be warned. And, and of course, always Jack's on his intro even spoils what movie we're covering. <laughs> and so, but most of you see the title anyway. It's Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978. From deep space. A space flower? Why not a space flower? The seed is planted. Why do we always expect metal ships? It smells lovely. Put it down, Jack. Terror grows. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Donald Sutherland. Brooke Adams. Leonard Nimoy. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Rated PG. Starts this week at a theater near you. Ten. And Bill, this is your pick. Why'd you pick this flick? You know, it's uh, it's funny because when you go through your head of of all time movies that stick with you, this one I saw relatively early in my um, horror uh, desire and young age of movies that stick with you, and I I just loved it. But I had a bit of a conflict because for the longest time I just considered this sci-fi. Right. And then there's that link of, is it sci-fi? Is it horror? Is that like its own genre? And I just decided, you know what? To heck with it. I like it. It's got some scary elements. It's got lots of suspense. It's got some great effects. And it's got imagery that still resonates today. So you know what? I'm going to go with it. I, hey, I hear you. And I, I, I've maintained this for a long time. I, you know what? This whole thing of having to pick one genre I think really came ab about with the video store age because before that, you know, things cross genre all the time. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I never had a problem with it, but Jackson, you know, I've seen this probably half a dozen times. Um, what are your thoughts on 1978's invasion of the body snatchers initial thoughts? Um, okay. So this is, this is, just as a precursor to my knowledge on the film, it's based on a book, which I haven't read, and um, adapted slightly, you know, in, in tone from a 50s movie, uh, which I haven't seen. So this is a totally new property for me going in. I mean, I knew the concept, but going into it, I was a little confused. I didn't know exactly how the world worked, what, what, the, what the, uh, the lore was, I guess you could call it. But um, I loved it. I loved this movie. And I was not expecting it to. I thought it was a long movie. Um, it kind of starts out, you know, seeming like every other 70s movie. You know, you got people walking around and, and really, really wide pants, you know. Um, and uh, I, was, I, was, I was a little like, okay, well, this is fine. This is watchable. And then the horror starts to kick in. And I'm like, yeah, this is a horror movie. Not only is it sci-fi, it is definitely horror um, and as we get further and further into the film, it, it kind of descends into madness. So um, I really dug it. Yeah, I love it, too. And, and that's kind of um, off brand for me because I love the original and I don't usually love 
remakes. In fact, sorry, buddy, um, the inv- the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers directed by Don Siegel, that's my favorite horror movie of the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, Creature of the Black Lagoon's up there, buddy, but it's just, it's, it's, it's my favorite. Well, you haven't seen it yet, so... I haven't just... seen it. I haven't okay. seen it, but the Gill Man will trample on any pod people. Oh, uh, and I, I gotta, I gotta stop and think. The, the Gill Man sent us a very nice email um, this week, right. and so we we thank him for for that. But I love this film. Um, I do think it's one of the better horror remakes of all time. I think it's right up there with Cronenberg's The Fly. I think it's that good. So that and the thing. Yeah, well, yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah, the, that's true. And I probably like the thing more than the fly, though I love the fly. So, mm-hmm. um, Bill, you know, we know the body snatching subgenre is one of Wolfman Josh's favorite. Why do you think it works so well? You know, it's one of those things where, at least with this one, what I one of the things I like about the film is you could conceivably, while it's a crazy idea, you get yourself sucked in and it might actually happen. Like the dialogue and what goes on in the film, the producer or the director went ahead and it seems like it's realistic dialogue. It's mm-hmm. it's it, the reactions of the characters are seemingly the way that people would react in those situations. There weren't any crazy special effects in terms of, you know, the military didn't jump in and start attacking. Like the genre itself makes you feel vulnerable like there are places and things out there beyond your control that can easily assimilate into your society and take it over without you even knowing right and and not having that control i think scares people when you're doing your humdrum humdrum normal life and all of a sudden stuff gets real and you have no control over it yeah yeah, good point. I, one of the, you know, as a as a minister and as a minister's kid at 47, um, one of the things I've seen over and over again is various forms of dementia. And that, to me, is the most frightening thing I've ever seen. I mean, I've seen people wither away from cancer. That's horrible. I've seen people battle with emotional problems. But dementia, that losing yourself is incredibly frightening to me. And I think that's one of the things this this plays on. What do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, the thought of you losing control without it being your fault. Right. The, the thought of you not being able to control the emotions, your feelings, your loss of love, your lack of place in society is a, a fear that, most people have in various forms and this genre of films really plays to that. Yeah, I agree. And I'm, I'm interested Jackson in your view, you know, as a, you're a teenager, you know, you're 16. When I was 16, I had seen the original invasion of the body snatchers and I loved it as a film, but it didn't really scare me or creep me out. Now that I've gotten older, it has, does this movie, creep you out on that level i mean on that that whole loss of individuality thing does that hit you at all so yeah this did scare me and and for some reason i feel like i can relate to it because um i'm seeing my friends kind of the same way the same things kind of happening to them when you're in middle school 
um, you know, you're all wacky and whatever, you like whatever you like. And then when you get to high school, there's this pressure to like what everybody else is liking. And it, I feel like it's kind of the same way with this late 70s culture that we're seeing reflected in this movie and even the 50s culture and the scares of, you know, co- communist infiltration that we saw in the 50s. Um, it's kind of this every generation sees this this fear of losing themselves in this crowd or or to an un, another country or something like that um so it is scary i think that's that's that it's terrifying to think as a whole the entire population is like that and it's scary to think what if that happened to me yeah that's a good point and this was because this leads me to my next question um you know we're looking at 1978 now the original 19 you know 58 uh, it worked, I think, because of whether you believe Don Siegel or not, whether it was about the Red Scare in America, you know, or whether it was about, you know, uh, you've got the rise of television and, and, and so forth and its effect on, on people. But in 78, <clears throat> I, I wondered why they wanted to remake this movie in 78. But this is the time when corporations are buying up radio stations so this is the time when you know you get the mass marketing of whether it's jordash or whatever on 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 tv and so forth and i don't know bill if you're old enough to remember that or not but certainly there was in the 70s and then in the 80s this kind of mass push for you to look this way dress this way listen to this all this other kind of stuff does that you think that resonates yeah Absolutely. And I remember like Wayne Gretzky having those Jordash jeans commercials, <laughs> you know, and he's wearing these tight pants with hockey sticks saying, come wear this, you know, and it's like, why? Just because you're wearing them. Why would I want to wear them? Right? And, right. and then came the rise of the, you know, like uh, the Chuck Taylors and the Air Jordans and the and the Benetton clothing. And, right. you know, you want to get part of the cool crowd in high school, but at the same time, I didn't like those clothes. So I was kind of stuck in the middle of, <laughs> do I want to follow or do I not? And that's, I mean, you go to the 56 version or you go to the 78 version, it's the, still the same kind of theme. Assimilation and joining the crowd versus individuality and your own interests. Right. And this was also, I mean, 78, you have the rise of the mall culture because those are starting to come around, you know, which... I don't know how many people listening remember, you know, shopping malls since everybody now just waits for Cyber Monday or whatever. But, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> I don't know how much you did that, Bill, but I remember hanging out in a mall a lot. And in cool. fact, you know, in 88, when I moved out to L.A., the place I hung out the most was the Sherman Oaks Galleria, where they shot Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Commando and Shopping Mall and all that other kind of stuff. Yeah. And it was everybody looked the same yeah i mean there's that scene in um fast times ironically where everybody looks like pat benatar right yes (laughs) they're like she's got the headband she's got the headband look at those tight lycra pants and and that's really what the culture was like at a certain point yeah when i was in la everybody tried to look like in, in 88 everybody was trying to look like axel rose before that i was told everybody tried to look like billy idol because the joke in la was the whole thing about being a single uh, straight male in L.A. was finding a woman that Billy Idol hadn't slept with. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or, or Lemmy. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Lemmy was, 
Yeah, yeah, but he had to work for his. And uh, <laughs> I loved Lemmy. I loved him, man. When I went to work, Lemmy is God, but that's a separate uh, podcast. Oh no, <laughs> we can talk about you know Jackson's a metalhead. We can talk because I I got to know Lemmy. Lemmy um, hung out when he wasn't on the road. He was always at the Rainbow Bar and Grill. Yeah, uh, on Sunset, which was directly across from where I worked when I worked as a music publisher for two years. And I had a fake ID and I'd go in the rainbow and I'd hang out with with Lemmy after a while, because at first I was afraid to approach him. He was always sitting there playing this um, game video poker yeah. or something. Yeah, it was like poker or blackjack or something like that. And eventually I just sat down next to him because I found out that he was a big fan of the guys I worked for, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, the guys who wrote Hound Dog and Jailhouse Rock and that kind of stuff. And so I sat down with Lemmy and I told him who I worked for and all kind of stuff. And he was fantastic, an amazing individual, gracious. I I always heard no matter how much how much he had to drink, he always had time for a fan. (laughs) <laughs> oh, it was, and it was unreal. I mean, not, you know, not to go off on a rant, but the, I would walk in there for lunch. I would go in there for lunch and he'd be sitting there drinking Jack and Coke. I'd go back there after I got off work. He was still sitting there dr- drinking Jack and Coke and no slurred words, nothing. I mean, it was like, it was almost just didn't affect him at all. But he told me this. I have no idea if this is apocryphal. He struck me as an honest man. He said that back in the 70s, when he was still with Hawkwind, before he started Motorhead, that he had become friends with Keith Richards and and wondered how Keith was doing as well as he was. And Keith said, well, you need to go have blood transfusions. So Lemmy goes to try to have a blood transfusion. They take a test of his blood, and they said, "Um, your blood is too toxic. If we gave you healthy blood, you'd die. (laughs) (laughs) See, I can tie this into Invasion because he didn't conform no, he did not. No. In the early 80s, he was still doing bell bottoms. I mean, you know. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but uh, but he, he made it cool, not creepy. Yeah. Yes. Well, Lemmy was cool. And uh, God rest his soul. But he told me one of the wisest things I've ever heard. We were sitting at, um, sitting at the bar at the Rainbow. And he asked me, he said, what's your favorite album of all time? And... I had been, I just confess it, I'd been drinking with him at that point. This was in the evening, and I could not hold my liquor as well as he could. And without thinking, I should have said a Motorhead album. Instead, I just blurted out Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses. Yeah. And he looked at me and he said, you were 15 when it came out, which I was then there on a fake ID. So automatically, I'm looking around to see, is the bartender hearing this? Because that was 87. He's going to know I was 15 in 87. And this is 1989. I'm 17. And he just kind of smiled and he said, let me tell you something. Whatever you think is cool at 15, you will think is cool for the rest of your life. True enough. Right? Yeah. True words have never been said. Am I right? Yeah. That was, that was about the time I heard 2112 and the rest is history. There you go. <laughs> there you go. And Jackson loves 2112. We used to listen oh, to yeah. it all the time, didn't we, buddy? Yeah. Yeah. So by coincidence, to get back to Invasion of the Body Snatchers, apologize yeah. for rant. This, it was released a month after the Jonestown Massacre. Oh, okay. How creepy is that? That is, that is, that is weird. That is weird. It is really weird. I mean, you want to talk about the horror of conformity, right? And See, just... I could take this another route and say, 
is this movie a remake or is this a sequel? Oh, because that's a good question. Because you could make the argument when Kevin McCarthy jumps out in front of the car, he's foretelling of what happened 20 years ago, and this is as an extension of the story. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. Never thought of it that way. It, it, um, it was a box office hit. It had a modest budget of $3.5 million, and it made $24 million. The rule when I was in Hollywood, I don't know if this is still the same way, which is you double the production bu- budget for, to consider marketing, which means it was made for $7 million. It makes $24. It received generally positive reviews. Gene Siskel even liked it. And he was a tough critic. <laughs> yeah, he was a tough critic. But Roger Ebert hated it. Not a shock. <laughs> Not shocked by that. Are you? Let me ask you: Are you a were you a Siskel and Ebert fan, Bill? I used to watch the show, and I, you know, you noticed that uh, uh, Ebert was not a fan of the horror genre. So you kind of just took it tongue in cheek with kind of some of his opinions. He had really odd opinions on horror movies. I mean, he loved Scream. Um. You know, he was a huge fan, obviously, of Psycho and Creature of the Black Lagoon. He loved, he loved, he, he would decry gore, but he loved Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, yeah, almost an, a dichotomy in that, you know. Right. It's, it's odd. Um, really odd. But Philip Kaufman directed this film. He has a really eclectic filmography. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah, I was telling he did war movies, drama movies, romance movies, and also Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is kind of, you can't compare that to anything. But I was thinking about it, though, because that actually worked, I think, in his favor, because he didn't have the trappings of the traditional sci fi director. So he took it in Mm -hmm. areas that, you know, somebody who had shot, you know, 15. A sci-fi movies from the 50s onwards might have taken it he took it almost from a dramatic historical action kind of point of view and so the, i think that's what makes the characters a little deeper and richer than in a lot of sci-fi films yeah jackson what did you think of as an aspiring director what did you think of the directing well i thought not only just i mean obviously he got great performances out of the whole cast which i'll talk about later how much i love that cast but um absolutely yeah, I feel like this entire movie is it's all building towards the conclusion beautifully because, you know, the beginning kind of mirrors the end in a way that's not obvious and I can't really it's just a mood. I don't I don't know how to describe it. But um the way that the world is shown where it starts off normal, but what really is normal because it's kind of this weird uh world where everybody's walking around it's all everybody's a star you know psychologists who write books are like as big as rock stars or movie stars and right. I, I guess that kind of is the culture of the 70s especially in california but um it was it's, well, it's interesting yeah, i mean that was that was that i mean even joe dante spoofs that in the howling the kind of mm-hmm. self-help gurus who were like really big in california at the time right and um it's it's strange to me because it seems to me like uh, Philip Kaufman is usually considered a writer at heart. Like that's what he's known for most because he wrote movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark and, and the right stuff. Um, 
which is, which is strange because um, I always find that that's an interesting take whenever you come from another part of production and you're given another another role like director like for me I'm usually a director or uh, or a like an onset supervisor but I recently became a writer and an actor in this short I mean it's not a real production it's a, it's a short that I'm working on and it's really strange to have to fill this role and know what other people are thinking and try to get into their heads so I feel like that might contribute to how this actually kind of plays out like a like a book like you're watching this long epic with characters and you really get inside their heads and there's maybe unreliable you know unreliable characters you can't really tell who's telling the truth and who's not um, but you get this over, overall vibe just from watching it. Yeah, he, you know, like I said, he is an eclectic director. He had been hired to do the outlaw Josie Wells and was fired by Clint Eastwood. Um, but then he goes on, like you said, to do direct the right stuff. And his screenplay actually, do you know who the first person who was hired to write the right stuff? I think I know, but I don't want to say anything that'll make me sound stupid. No, William Goldman wrote That's the original what I was thinking. script. Because he mentioned it in the book, but I couldn't remember if that was right or not. Yeah, William Goldman wrote the original script for The Right Stuff, and they went with Philip Kaufman's screenplay over it, which The Right Stuff is an amazing movie. Mm -hmm. um, and then he goes on to do The Unbearable Likeness of Being, which is a strange film, a good film, but a strange film, Rising Sun with Wesley Snipes and Sean Connery. I mean, he really, you know, really... He's, he's all over the place. He is, yeah. Yeah, but... But in, he's one of those because let's face it, I mean, Steven Spielberg several times has tried to make a comedy and it hasn't worked. I mean, if there are any 1941 fans out there, I'm sorry, but or always, but they're crappy comedies. He's always wanted to do it. He hasn't been able to do it. Hitchcock always wanted to do a comedy. And as much as I love The Trouble with Harry, I'm not sure he pulled it off. But Philip Kaufman is that rare breed where he really does a great job crossing genres, which is hard. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I also think this, I, I think one of the advantages that uh, Kaufman did is he surrounded himself with some really good people when he was making this film. Oh man. Well, yeah, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the cast and the crew of uh, yep. invasion of the body snatchers. So, Bill, your thoughts on the cast and the crew of this? Well, film. I, I was going to go with the crew direction, and like his cinematographer was Michael Chapman, who had previously done Taxi Driver, and would wow. go on to do Raging Bull, among others, Raging Bull, The Lost Boys, and The Fugitive. Wow! So he surrounded himself with someone really good, and the key star of this that gets very little credit was a man called Ben Burt, and mm. Ben Burt was the sound man. And he had just worked on Star Wars. Oh, wow. And he brought a certain element to the film. Like when you see that one scene where they see uh, the pods forming and cracking, and that's all Ben Burt. Um, he brings a certain element to it that, you know, if you just pick a, a standard guy from the MGM plant to come and do it, might not bring some of the sounds and aura to the film that he did yeah at, excellent point um jackson what do you think i mean what were you seeing when you were watching this is because I, I know you watch films very carefully what were you seeing 
Well, the the sound design, what he just touched on, and and all the sound, the score, even, uh, really haunted me. I mean, you wouldn't expect it from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You'd expect, you know, psychological horror, you know, body horror, maybe, like we see in one scene. But the sound design really unsettled me, because the sound that the pods make, it's like this warping, kind of eerie, banshee scream, you know, that's got, like, a guitar flanger on it. It's kind of weird. Um... And uh, the cast, seeing the cast react to all the crazy stuff that's happening, like, well, I've seen a bunch of crazy stuff today, but this this has to top it. It's just fantastic. I mean, Donald Sutherland, Leonard Nimoy, uh, Brooke Adams, Veronica Cartwright, you know, from Alien, and of course, Jeff freaking Goldblum, all in this yeah. movie, which is adapting both a book and a 50s movie, which... Honestly, even though in the horror community it's highly regarded and, and by a lot of cinephiles, but really, if you ask the normal person about it on the street, they don't remember this movie or they haven't seen it in this generation at least, which is kind of a shame. Like, is this a movie yeah. that you would recommend to your friends? You know, if any of your buddies or girlfriends or whatever have seen this film? Uh, no, I. Okay, so this is a, a great movie for for fans of movies and and more specifically sci-fi and horror, but it's it's a long movie. Um, it's, it's got a slow buildup. I would call it a slow burn until, until the last 30 minutes, which is kind of action-packed. What, what, what did I call it? Purposefully paced. Mm-hmm. Purposefully paced. Yeah, I, I, I'd say that's a fair uh, description of the movie. Um, so unless, unless they, they were like, oh, I really want to see something like that. Like, I, like, I saw Hereditary, and I want to see something mm-hmm. like that, but more sci-fi. I'd be like, well, here you go. Are you okay with bell-bottoms? And uh, if they say yes, well, it's a go-ahead. We're, we're clear for launch. But um, does otherwise, freak you out? Yeah, I, yeah. It's it's a, it's a strange film to describe too. You'd have to pitch it to your friends. Um, think about pitching this to another sixteen-year-old. Like, oh, it's great. It's got Donald Sutherland. Who? You know, Kiefer Sutherland. Who? You know, you know what I mean? Um, so it's kind of it's kind of hard to pitch it. I mean, they know Jeff Goldblum because he's what the kids like to call a meme lord. But um, and they know Leonard Nimoy from Star Trek. But uh, they'd be like, why are his ears so rounded? So I don't know that I'd recommend this to someone my age, but definitely an adult who wants to get into this kind of thing. I would. Mm. Yeah, well, what, what was yours, Matt? What did you think of the uh, characters or the actors in this film? I I thought the cast was incredible, and I remember seeing this for the first time as a teenager, um, maybe younger than you, Jackson, and remembering it's the first time I ever saw Leonard Nimoy outside of a Star Trek rerun. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought he was fantastic. Um, I thought Donald Donald Sutherland in this movie. I mean, yeah, the whole cast is amazing. Brooke Burke, and but Donald Sutherland is incredible in this movie. I mean, Oscar nomination worthy you know that good um and but i do think probably the most underappreciated actor in this cast and i've never understood why outside the 70s she didn't get more work on this is veronica cartwright i think she's incredible yep. in it. yeah absolutely really. yeah, well the one the, the, i was gonna say the one actor in this film i think gets no credit that really goes under the radar is art hindle Ah. Art Hindle as the, you know, uncaring husband who had to play it very straight, played it just brilliantly because you think the guy's a real piece of work. But until you realize why, 
And then you see him with all these clandestine meetings with these odd people and what the heck's going on. He's kind of that carrot that they dangle to get you into the story. Right. <laughs> and he is, I mean, if memory serves, I mean, to be blunt, I mean, he plays a D-bag in a lot of movies, if, but he does it well. Yeah. Which is not, look, I, you know, I think there's a tendency to look at certain actors who play a lot of jerks um, as, you know, that that's just who they are, when in fact, you know, they're the exact opposite. Um, because I, Art Hindle, of course, played kind of the moody jerk in what it was Black Christmas, right? Mm -hmm. yep. Is he the piano guy? Yeah, he's the piano guy. Yeah. Okay. Who does anybody like that character? <laughs> no, but That's he's scary. I mean, when he does, is it, doesn't he pick up like a like a, a a divider or something? I don't some big metal pole and smash a piano with it in pure rage yes. after he hit like a wrong note or something. Yes, what a, he does. What a weird character. He's kind of a, a misdirect, I guess. Yeah, he's he's a, he's a red herring, but. Um, but what I found, you know, working in Hollywood for several years is what's ironic is some of the nicest human beings you'll ever meet play the jerks. I mean, um, it's, it's, it takes a skill for the audience to believe you're such a piece of work when you're really, I mean, it says something to his character. He's still working to this day. He's, is he really? He's, he's got three films in post-production. Wow. And and I know him a little bit more. He's a Canadian actor. He'll show up on CBC television series right after he's done a Hollywood movie. The guy's a working man's actor, so no job is too small for him. Which has nothing but respect for me. And, you know, I mean, yeah, that's I just listened to the Shockwaves podcast interview with W. Earl Brown, you know, who you remember as Kenny from Scream, and but also people remember him from Deadwood and all other kind of stuff. And just a really likable guy, despite the fact that he plays the heavy in almost anything. And he was talking about how he lives in Burbank and he played a rapist in a movie and his daughter goes to school. And, and the only thing she hears all day is her dad's the rapist in that movie. And, <laughs> and he's like, she's like, gee, thanks, dad. You know, but he's just, he's the sweetest guy. And uh, yeah, I can see Art Hindle that, that way. But you're right. And he does a great job here setting the tone. Yeah, and he's, and he's a, a perfect heel. You know, yeah. he, he's the, he, he does it well, but he doesn't give anything away either. Y you still have to follow along to kind of see where he's going with it. Yeah, you can see where the the temptation would be to overact there, and he doesn't do it. He pulls it back. Yep. Yeah, perfectly disciplined. Um, so, Jackson, let's talk about scenes in this movie. So what scenes in Invasion of the Body Snatchers 78 stuck out to you? Uh, dog with man face. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, okay. I know the, I, I gotta I know ask Bill, what is the that wolf about? Man can't stand that scene. Who okay. can't? The Wolfman. The Wolfman oh, Josh okay. can't stand that scene. Makes sense to me. <laughs> why does he can't? Why I've missed that? Why can't he stand that scene? I, I don't know. He just he says that scene gives him nightmares. I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Man. I thought it was an objection as a filmmaker, but he's saying that that just <laughs> freaks him out. Yeah. 
Or, uh, or maybe, or sorry, maybe it was Dave. One of the two of them, they just, that scene is the one that sticks out the most out of the whole thing. It sticks out the most to me. I mean, it's a dog with a man's face. Well, I mean, it's okay, blunt, can I it's right ask, there. because what did I miss? How did that happen? I know how it happened. I've worked, right. this, I've worked this out in my head. All right, let's okay? hear your theory. Let's hear so, it. The, the pod people, the way that they produce the body is they take genetic samples from the human and they make, they reproduce that, that person's, you know, that they re reproduce a body. So in the act of reproducing a man, they accidentally got some dog DNA and they mixed together to make this hybrid. I am going to check your grades this week because you've spent way too much time thinking about this. As yeah, I'm like, I'm like Charlie uh, and, and It's Always Sunny. I've got, I've got these calculations on the wall. I'm, I'm tearing my hair out. I'm like, the dog man has to make sense somehow. <laughs> hey, hey, Sylvia. Bill, do you have a theory on the dog man? <laughs> um, no. I mean, the only thing I can link it up to is the fact that they all work in a scientific lab so that somehow, uh, okay. somehow that played into it. But I, I'm not going to jump that far. My science marks in biology for by grade 12 were not that hot. So, <laughs> so this is a Gremlins 2 scenario is what you're saying? That there was a, <laughs> there's a Christopher Lee character up there? Um, okay. Bill, what about you? What scenes to you? And we're spoiler podcast, so you go for yeah. it, whatever you want. What scenes stand out to you? Well, there's two. There's Well, there's two or three. There's uh, uh, obviously the ending. Yes. Will will stick with anybody. I don't care if you like the movie or not. That, and I thought it was brilliantly set up, because yes. you cut to the scene before and he's kind of cowering underneath the bridge, and then the next one, Veronica Cartwright is there and she thinks she's found her foil, and then all of a sudden, bam. Yeah. So, uh, so that's the one. I don't know if we want to discuss the scene any further or. No, go for it. If they haven't watched it, look, we, we give them a warning. There's spoilers here, so just go for it. Well, the, the, the other scene that to me that I really love is the scene where, kind of about five minutes before that, where they're all being chased by the mm -hmm. mob and they're hiding underneath, and Jeff Goldblum kind of just takes off on his own to divert them, to try to save them. And, and, and it's kind of reminiscent of some of those old zombie films. You know, it's, yeah. it, it, and there's a definite... I, I don't know about you, but I got the vibe of a definite Romero connection to this film between, really? the, so, between the social consciousness of the messages of consumerism and alienation and also the zombie scenes in the mall of all the of everybody chasing each other. And then them being chased by this big horde of uh, people who are zombie like underneath being the last remnants of rational thought in the world. Oh, very good. Very good. Yeah, I had <clears throat> I didn't go that deep on it, but I think you're right. Um, that final scene I picked, I did a blog post on our website about uh, what I thought were the top 100 horror scenes of all time. Yeah, that's an awesome list, by the way. Oh, thank you. And that one's in there because I, it's so powerful. I mean, there's no way you could have left the theater in 1978 and not have thought of that for like weeks. No. And and the high pitched squeal, holy crap! Like, oh, oh wow. man! It, yeah, it disturbs me. And did it did it bother you, Jackson? That was because yeah. this was the first time I watched this movie. I watched this movie about a year ago when I was working through the movies of 1978 for my list on Letterboxd, 
And then re-watching it on Amazon Prime a couple weeks ago, I remember thinking, oh, man, that scene. When I, the first time I saw this on cable when I was a kid, that scene freaked me out. But I wondered how it would affect you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's terrifying. Just that guttural scream and the, and the eyes wide open and the point. And you know what it reminds me of? Um, This is a, a more recent film, but it reminds me of Midsummer. When all the cult members are just kind of screaming in sorrow, especially uh, this the cliff jump scene, and if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about, where right. they're all kind of screaming in unison in this kind of cultish way. It reminds oh, me of that. There's, some, there's thanks, something about. I, I haven't seen it yet. Thanks a lot. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Come on, man! It's one of the best. It's it's been in theater. It's on. It's out on Blu-ray. Come on. I'm not giving anybody a hard time because I have to watch it for my end of the year show anyway. So no biggie. Yeah, there you go. Well, it's... that's not too much of a spoiler. That's actually early on in the film, believe it or not. No worries. <laughs> yeah, it's in the first third of the film. Uh, um, yeah, it's uh, that's disturbing. But good call. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But that kind of brings it back to that cultish kind of thing. And 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 to think about it, I mean. 78, I I mean, I was six years old in 78, but, you know, Bill, you'll like this. I was a history undergrad. That's where I did my bachelor's degree. A man after my own heart. Yeah, and, (laughs) you know, and I'm still a history buff. There were, there was a lot of cultic activity in the 70s. Coming out of the 60s, people disillusioned from, what they saw as the failure of the 60s, which is what kind of Wes Craven had in mind, with Last House on the Left. And and so, but there were a lot of them. And um, I remember as a little kid now, looking back, hearing my mom and dad talk about them, having to deal with these cults and so forth. And so, you know, the fact that, obviously they didn't have Jonestown in mind because the massacre came out after the film was done, but the cult aspect of this, I think, does probably play into Philip Kaufman's mind here. And this does play, play into that time in history where everybody thought the devil cults yes. were, the, were the bane of North America, you know? And oh, as it, absolutely. I was going to say, as it turned out, they really weren't what they said they were, but... Oh, mm-hmm. no. I, I remember as a rebellious... You know, I ran away from home when I was 15 and uh, crashed on a buddy's couch. And one of the things I had that was always sitting on the coffee table just to freak people out is I had the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey. And I remember how disappointed I was when I read it because it was basically just a new age track. I mean, it was, <laughs> there is no God, there is no devil. It's all this power you, you know, just find in nature. And I'm reading this thinking, really, dude? Seriously? <laughs> You know, and we just call it Satan. And I remember being really disappointed by it. But um, that was me at 15 listening to Metallica constantly. But um, it, it th- there was that, you know, thing out there. And I'd be interested, Bill, you as a as somebody who is a, is a history buff, you know, the 60s, obviously, coming into the 70s, lost people, you know, left people disappointed. The promise there wasn't fulfilled. You had Altamont, you know, you had all that kind of stuff happen, uh, the Manson family. And then in the 70s, you had people looking for identity. And do you think Kaufman had anything in mind here? It was like, you know, looking for identity from 
people, you know, preaching kind of this or teaching this, selling this, I've got a ready-made identity for you, how dangerous that can be. I, I don't know if that was his primary um, theme to the story, but I do know I was going to bring up the thought of this might be the most layered film of all time. Wow. I mean, you've got you, the decline of hippie culture. You've got the distrust of government. You've got the rise of individuality. You've got anti-city living themes. Right. You've got the reaction to new wave psychiatry. You've got the people want to live in the suburbs or do they want to live in the main city? Uh, I mean, there's no, there. it's no, uh, uh, it's purposeful that the story was set in San Francisco with, you know, questions mm. about immigration and multiculturalism and, you know, and even the beginning about health in restaurants. Should we go back to the 50s way of, you know, the nuclear family with mom, Ward, Cle Ward Cleaver and June Cleaver making the meals? Like, this film you can take, you know, like, if you were in film school at USC or something, you could do a 30-page doctrine just on this film. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. And, yeah, and I was going to say, as far as I'm concerned, my favorite scene i can't say it's the most powerful scene the most powerful scene i think is the end scene but my favorite scene is when donald sutherland that opening scene in the restaurant is doing the investigation and finds it's you know rat poop you know and he goes it's just rat poops no it's a caper okay taste it i love that scene. <laughs> well, the other scene i was going to mention was near the end when donald sutherland was tearing down, uh, uh, trying to blow up all the pods, and he's on the top. Did not remember, remind you of Errol Flynn flying down a, a oh, ship? Like, coming down, right. you know, I thought, that's just like Errol Flynn on the, you know, whatever the, the, the movies were, because he's right. flying down and getting chased, and it was almost like an old-school uh, homage to some of those early adventure films. No, that's a good point. I, I agree. I just, and ironically, I just rewatched chaplain from 92 last night with my wife where kevin klein is playing errol flynn and you know talking about being an aging acting star and yeah no i i agree i think that's but that goes back to kaufman right i mean kaufman just has this i mean he's the he just really doesn't seem to have a genre he just seems to be able to master any genre which is again not only spielberg you know when you name the great directors name how many directors can do it all. I mean, there there are a few, you know, Robert Wise, you know, there, there are a few people who can do it all, but they're not that many. Even I would argue John Carpenter hasn't been able to pull it off in, in, in every genre. Like Toby Hooper is a great act, uh, director, but you couldn't get Toby Hooper to do a Western. No. You know, no. you just couldn't. You can't, if the, those uh, multi-talented directors throw them into any movie, they don't come along very often. No, exactly. I mean, when John Carpenter tried to do comedy and memoirs of an invisible man, I mean, anybody here like that movie? I mean, Never I love John it. Carpenter, but oh. Never oh, seen it. it don't, and don't even get me going on Ghost of Mars. No. Oh, oh, where, yeah, the Western in space, which is just awful. But but Kaufman is able to pull it off. I mean, you know, this is a great movie. The Right Stuff's a great movie. The Unbearable Likeness of Being is a great movie. Um, you know, Red Sun is a fun movie. I mean, he's he's able to do all those things. And that's, you know, if you can't tell, I'm tr I'm really trying to sell this movie to people, because if you haven't seen it, you need to see it because this is, you know, I just spoil it. This is a great, great movie.
and what I like about it is if you watch it for a second and a third time, you mm-hmm. pick up the clues you missed the first time along and it starts oh. to make sense. And it's, it's like the first time I watched the naked gun in the theater, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, what the heck is going on here? But you watch it a second and a third time. It makes complete sense. <laughs> yeah. Airplane as well. Right. Airplane yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, remember see, I remember seeing naked gun in the theater, just laughing my behind off. Oh yeah, but it, but this one has those subtle and a lot of non-verbal clues that if you pay attention the second and third time, you go, "Why did I miss that the first time?" Right. But you're so engrossed in the story, you don't get the fine detail. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And so, Jackson, I know you take notes. So tell me about what you want to talk about with this movie. Yeah, um, so it's strange, okay? In a year boasting the release of Halloween, Superman, Grease, The Animal House, Dawn of the Dead, The Deer Hunter, and The Boys from Brazil, this movie stands out, and I think it's totally memorable for a few reasons. As we've already discussed, the the horror elements is, are really strong, the cast is really strong, the directing is really strong. But um, it's it's weird because there's something about this invasion narrative that really appeals to me because... Even though it's theorized, you know, Bill brought this up earlier, it's theorized that, um, you know, this is a sequel to the original and the invasion has already started. It's just spreading. But in the beginning in San Francisco, it seems like it starts off really, really small. And then by the end, it's like there's no hope. They're boarding ships. They're they're going across the country. You know what I mean? That everyone that isn't a human uh, or isn't a pod person is a, is a minority. You know, they, they talk about the type H uh, person. And if they catch any of them, they bring them to like a processing plant, I guess. Plant, no, no pun intended. But um, it's 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 really disheartening. I feel I, I feel like the end of this movie is one of the bleakest endings I've ever seen, and that's coming from somebody that just watched. Is it the Machinist? Is it the Machinist? The, the movie with with Christian Bale, um, which I thought had a really bleak ending. But there's something mm-hmm. about that kind of movie that really appeals to me. Yeah, me too. I don't know. That's something genetically you've gotten, and I apologize for. But yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, Bill, what do you, what are some of the things you want to talk about with this movie? Well, the, the the other fun thing about this film is looking for the cameos because mm-hmm. there there are a few, and I mean, if you watch the opening scene really carefully, there's a, a Robert Duvall dressed up as a priest, swinging on the swing set. And he wow. he had worked he had worked with Kaufman before. He refused to get paid for his little part, and the agreement that came up with is he did that part for an Eddie Bauer jacket. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's fantastic! Now, that's now, I don't know if we mentioned. I mean, Kevin McCarthy is in this movie. Kevin McCarthy's in it, and the original director Don Siegel plays the cab driver that drives oh, him at right. the end. Mm-hmm. That's right. One of the and, few directors who get along with Clint Eastwood, yeah. And 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 one final one. You know, there was a homeless guy that was playing the guitar that uh, Donald Sutherland would drop a couple dimes in at the park. Do you know who that was? Not off the top of my head, no. That was Jerry Garcia. Oh, that's right. That's right. Because he, yeah, he was living in Frisco at the time, and yeah. Yeah. Oh. So I mean, like like when you dig a little deeper, there's a lot of little bits in it that. Again, you don't catch the first time. It takes a second and a third and a fourth watch to go, yeah, that does. Why isn't he playing Ripple, you know? Yeah. 
Oh, good point. What else? What else do you want to bring out here about Invasion of the Body Snatchers 78, Bill? What, what else I struck like, I was going to say, what, what, what I like is the fact that it sticks with me. Like, I saw this early in my career. We used to have a TV station in Toronto called City TV that's still around, but it used to show a lot of films. It was an independent station, unedited, just let them go. And they used to play this on a loop about every five, six months. Wow. And I would make sure I watched it every darn time it was on TV. Wow. And I really I start, began to appreciate the acting of Leonard Nimoy because outside of Star Trek, this might be the best role he ever did. Oh, I think he's amazing in it. And, Absolutely and I think, amazing in it. I was going to say his pacing in the film, you know, the, the inflection he uses in his voice, the slowness and steadiness of it. And, and when did he turn into the alien? They don't show. When they did don't. that occur? Yeah, yeah you're mm -hmm. not really sure if it's if it's early on or midpoint in the because, film. Because there's one point when he comes in during the investigation, you don't know what side he's on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And is yeah. he an alien? Is he working for them or is he on Sutherland's side? You're not quite sure. Mm -hmm. Right. Your first confirmation that he's a pod person comes when he's talking to Donald Sutherland on the on the balcony. Then he walks down and gets picked up by pod people in the car. Um, but that comes, you know, he's already been introduced and it's been 45 minutes. You know, that's your first confirmation that he's definitely a pod person. But before that, you know, it could, his lack of emotion could just be, you know, it's Leonard Nimoy and he's Spock, you know. Yeah, and this was a, I mean, this was his first chance to really kind of break from that. And unfortunately, he never did. He did as a director, became a very successful director in the 80s. And a poet. I hear he's a really I'm, talented writer. And, and a singer. And a singer. Is that I've, right? <laughs> I've, I've never read his poetry. I have, unfortunately, heard him and William Shatner singing. I will pass on both of those. But, oh, uh, no. <laughs> I just got to hear it now. Oh, no. I Growing up in the 70s, because, you know, being born in 72 and I discovered Star Trek on reruns around 77, you know, it, it was and I loved Star Trek as a kid. I mean, I had a, a, a makeshift phaser and a makeshift, you know, communicator and all that other kind of stuff. But this showed me that, you know, unfortunately, he was so typecast, but I mean, he was a great actor. I mean, he could do it. He, he had the chops. Absolutely. I mean, he probably could have done a lot more stage work, and maybe he did. I, I'm not that familiar with his career. No, outside of this in Star Trek, I'm not either. No, but he probably, you know, he has that slow pacing that he could work well. But, I mean, he's probably a really funny guy. You just don't get to see it. I did see an interview he did. William Shatner had a very short-lived talk show, and I can't remember what it was, and he interviewed Leonard Nimoy, and they kept arguing with each other. And it was pretty funny. And, yeah, he was pretty witty and, and, and pretty quick. And so, um, yeah, I love him in, in, in this movie. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm thinking about it. You know, there are great performances. There are good performances. Off the top of my head, I can't think of a weak performance in this movie. Can you, Bill? Uh, no, not really. Um, I mean, some of them were a little bit stiff, but they were meant to play stiff. Right. So, no, it was very well acted. And I got to uh, confess, Donald Sutherland is one of my favorite all-time actors. Like, mm -hmm. 
you see him in Clute, you see him in Mash, you see him yeah. in some of the Woody Allen films. The, the guy is brilliant, but I think this might be right the top of his Mount Rushmore. I really think he was fantastic in this film. Oh, he's yeah, I agree. He's incredible. Um, you know this. Yeah, thinking on his filmography, this this may be my favorite performance of his, and I can't think of a bad performance he's given. I know he's been in bad movies, but I can't think of a bad performance that he's given. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I mean, there's no there's no surprise that the son is as good an actor as he is when he gets the gene pool of that, you know. Yeah, he was actually one of the first celebrities I met when I went to L.A. I went into a place called Duke's Cafe, and he was dating um, Julia Roberts at the time. And the biggest uh, thing I remember from that is he's 5'5", five five and she's 6 foot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's a bit of a, it was a bit of a disparity. And then she broke up with him because he was cheating on her with a uh, porn star. Um, but... You know, thanks. But I digress. Yeah, <laughs> I digress. But no, he is he is a fine actor. I was kind of shocked that in the '90s his career kind of died off for a while. There, he was kind of doing supporting roles like in Time to Kill and that kind of stuff. Where it, it was it was 24 that got him back going, right? Yeah, it really was. Whereas Donald Sutherland just kind of continued film after film after film after film to do um, an amazing job. So. I, I'll just be honest, I love this movie. Okay, so anything else you guys want to talk about, Jackson? Anything else you want to hit on on Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978? Yeah, I've got just one more thing, and that's about Sutherland and Adam's uh, chemistry on screen. It's Brooke probably Adams. one of the best I've ever... Yeah, Brooke, yeah, Brooke Adams. Um, probably one of the best I've ever seen. That scene where they're, they're eating, talking, and, and doing the eye thing, uh, one of the most charming you know scenes of dialogue ever in film, I would say. And I still don't know how she does that, that little eye jitter thing. How do you do that? Well, I, I like the chemistry when he's telling her that little joke in the car. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think I have heard it before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not, I, I'll be honest, I'm not a huge fan of her filmography, but I think she does exactly what she needs to do here. Mm -hmm. The other I thing I wanted to, I was going to say, the other thing I wanted to touch on was, for 1978, the the visual and physical effects were pretty darn good. Oh yeah, you know, Absolutely. like uh, some some of those would hold up today. Yeah, uh, the, the, those pods and the ooze and the wisps, and and the scene where you see Brooke Adams basically naked laying there, and you see the pod turning into her, and yeah. like that that scene where you see her laying there, that freaked me out, like. Like, mm -hmm. one moment you could fall asleep, and then that's you. Right. Yep. I thought oh, the and effects... you, you see her body kind of disintegrate in yeah. Donald Sutherland's arms? Ugh. Just, disturbing. Just, just disappear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a disturbing scene. I agree. Yeah, I did not look up who did the special effects here, but whoever they are, God bless you, uh, sir or ma'am, because you did a fantastic job. Um, so, Jackson... What's your rating and recommendation for Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Because you're a tough, number-wise, you're a tough critic, so I want to hear this. What What's your number rating here? What do you say? I'm coming in high. When I first watched it uh, a couple weeks ago, it was an 8.5 for me. Now my appreciation has grown, so I think it's more of a 9 out of 10. Um, wow. 
I would say it's one of the best movies of that. Obviously, look at how many great movies came out that year. So many influential movies, like I mentioned before. But of the horror genre, I would argue it's one of the scariest. I mean, you have Halloween and Dawn of the Dead, but I would argue that the psychological elements of it are, are just as scarring as anything you see in those movies. So I would recommend it as a buy. Um, I would say it, it, it's streaming somewhere, right? I remember, or maybe not, maybe... No, it's anyways, on, it, it was on Amazon Prime two weeks ago Prime. when I watched it. Yeah. yeah, it was on Prime. Yeah, it's on Prime. So whether they bring it back or not, or if it's even there anymore, I have no idea because, you know, they're kind of wishy-washy on that. But um, I would recommend streaming it, and if you like it, buy it because it is a, it's one I'll be re-watching. Wonderful. All right, Bill, your pick. What do you say? My pick, well, I mean, the, the last thing I wanted to say I hadn't said, is, said yep. was, there's some pretty funky keyboard music in this film. Yeah, yeah, there <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very much of its time. You yeah. know, like uh, the, the new wave phenomenon had hit by that point. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I, I love this film. Uh, for the longest time, I considered this the greatest science fiction film ever. Oh, and wow. you could argue it's the greatest remake, you, uh, along with The Fly and uh, The Thing. Uh, I've come to appreciate it. I don't care whether you consider it sci-fi, whether you consider it horror, whether you consider it a social commentary. I give it a 9 out of 10. Definite buy. Mm -hmm. I think it's very brilliantly done cinematography. Uh, yeah. I think the acting is very strong. And even if you're merely a lover of film itself, it needs to be watched. I wholeheartedly agree, and I'm right there with you. I give it a 9 out of 10. I call it a buy, and as I said, it, it, when I rewatched it the last couple times, it was streaming on Amazon Prime, but now I plan to buy the Shout Factory Blu-ray, which Shout Factory has done a Blu-ray, um, and they, they've got their Black Friday sale coming up, so which, which I always go to Vinegar Syndrome and, and, and Diabolic DVD and Shout Factory and look at their uh, Black Friday sales. So I'm definitely going to buy it. When I looked at, I because I, like I said, I, I rewatched this a little over a year ago, working through the movies of the 70s. When I did my 10 best horror movies of 1978, I've got number 10, The two Toolbox Murders, number nine, Piranha, number eight, The Eyes of Laura Mars, uh, number seven, The Boys from Brazil, number six, Coma, number five, Jaws 2, which I know has its problems because you can see the mm -hmm. hydraulics and the mouth and everything, but yeah. I still love it. As Jordan Peele says, it's a slasher in the water. Um, Martin, uh, the reason I don't have Dawn of the Dead on here is because it didn't hit the U.S. till 79, Jackson. That's why I don't have mm -hmm. a, it. It's in my 79 list. Number three, Magic, which I know, Jackson, you love. Yeah. Uh, number two, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and number one, Halloween. That's what I have for seventy-eight. I was going to say, say Martin. Martin is a very interesting film as well. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, That's the one with the rats. No, no. Oh, <laughs> no. Well, what am I That's thinking of? What that means? You're either thinking of Ben or Willard. Yeah. Willard. Yes. That's what I'm. Willard. Thinking of. Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay, I'm thinking. Martin of, is, is George Romero's vampire. vampire movie. Yeah, That's it's George right. Romero's vampire boy. movie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now. Well, I no, he's not little. He's like twenty years old, but he like, yeah, he drains people. Yeah, drains people with needles. It was Tom Savini's first gig as a head effects mm -hmm. department guy. He'd been an assistant before that. That was his first gig, and he also acts in it. He's also a low point of the movie. Okay. Uh, he's terrible in it, but he's it's it's an interesting <laughs> movie. So that all that being said, Bill, where they can where can they find you online? 
Well, they can find me on, uh, I'm on Letterboxd as Bill Horror Guy. You can find me on Facebook. I'm not tough to find. You can listen to me on Land of the Creeps with the Greg, Greg Amortis and Dave Becker. And uh, we have one coming up on Giallo's. And uh, Dave Roy is going to be on that one. And there's a whole catalog of them. And I'm in the uh, Fantasy Football League. And I hope I'm <laughs> winning. I haven't checked today. So uh, give me a shout. And uh, everybody enjoy their horror films. Absolutely. And you're great on Land of the Creeps. You've been on HNP recently as well. And yep. people should check that out. And I'm in that fantasy football league. I think I'm six, four and one right now. So I'm, I'm doing better than I thought I would. So um, Jackson, where they, where can they find you, buddy? On Letterboxd, I'm at Kane Hero. That's K-A-I-N-E-H-E-R-O. And at, on Twitter, I'm at Kane underscore Hero 12. Uh, I've been logging a bunch of movies on Letterboxd, so you can go and check out my reviews there. I saw the worst movie of the year. Um, so That's if you fun. want to see my review, oh, The Haunting of Sharon a... Tate. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen it. Terrible. Do not. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're making a worst movies of the year list, do not watch it. Uh, no. Don't give it the time of day. I've actually had the exact ex uh, opposite experience of you. I have watched three movies in the last week. And they've all been great. Uh, when I was in Kansas City, I got to sneak away and see Parasite. Um, I saw The Lighthouse. And I saw Dr. Sleep. And they're all amazing. Absolutely I amazing. did see Dr. Sleep. Yeah, that was good. Whereas last night I watched The Bird with Crystal Plumage. So. Wow, you can't complain about that. That's amazing no. as well. Oh, no. yeah. And that's one for young Jackson to look up. Oh. <laughs> that's Argento, buddy. You can't go wrong with Argento. Awesome. Uh, We'll add it to the watch list. At least pre-90 Argento. You can't go wrong with Argento. Mm -hmm. um, so I can be found uh, at Pastor Matt R on Twitter and Letterboxd. Father and Son Watch Horror can be found at fatherandsonwatchhorror.com. Uh, also on Twitter, Instagram, and we have a closed Facebook group. If you'd like to be a guest or make a film recommendation, be sure to hit us up. Please subscribe, rate, and review over at iTunes. We're really happy with our, our traffic. We meant to do this as a monthly podcast. We started doing it as a weekly podcast, and I got sick for the last couple of weeks. Um, but we'll, we, we plan to be back next week with Barely Ashley, our buddy Barely Ashley, um, the first female guest on our podcast, I'm ashamed to say. And so mm -hmm. she'll be on next week to discuss Return of the Living Dead, her favorite movie of all time. So that's going to be Jackson will love that one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love Return of the Living Dead. One of the best soundtracks, too. And so. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. So until then, Jackson, say goodbye to the good people. Goodbye. And remember to live long and prosper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bill, thanks for being on, man. It's, it's always a pleasure. Not a problem. I'll be on anytime you want me. All right. So remember, guys, the family that watches for together stays together. Take care. <laughs>